Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you all for being with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I want to get right to the panel because we have a lot to talk about on today's show, as we always do these days. Uh, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is uh, with us. Um, Tamar, thank you. We're glad to have you here. Thank you. Professor Andra Gillespie, professor of political science and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University, joins us as well. Hi, Andra. Good to have you with us. Thanks for having me back. And Margaret Coker, editor-in-chief of The Current, which you can read at thecurrentga.org, covers the news along the uh, code digital publication that covers news along the coast. Uh, based out of Savannah, but but also covers uh, statewide news uh, when it's appropriate. Um, Margaret, thank you for being here today. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, Savannah's getting ready to rumble this Friday. Yeah, we'll be talking about the uh, debate uh, uh, between Walker and Warnock down in Savannah uh, at a certain point in the show today. But I do want to start, we've been talking about the Walker uh, story for such a big portion of the show uh, the last uh, uh, days. And I kind of want to start in a completely different direction for a few minutes. Um, Tamara, you have been covering, and you've been on top of all the developments in Fonnie Willis's special grand jury investigation. And um, there's some new reporting now on uh, additional witnesses she wants to call. She wants to bring in Newt Gingrich, who I think we believe, she believes, may have had a role in fashioning this fake electorate elector concept, among other things, and um, one-time National Security uh, Director Michael Flynn, who had a very short tenure in the White House with Trump, but when the election uh, went to Joe Biden, he got deeply involved in efforts to uh, uh, overturn it in one way or the other. Uh, Tomorrow, what do we know about whether it's likely those two will actually appear? They, they'll have to go through state courts in their own uh, states, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's going to take the approval of a home state judge in these different jurisdictions. Some folks live in Texas. Newt Gingrich lives in McLean in Virginia. It'll take a, a judge from there signing off on that. And there is a question of, of whether or just how much folks are going to try and challenge their subpoenas. In, in Texas, some witnesses have had luck with their courts there who don't recognize special grand juries in Georgia um, since they're a relatively new creation. And so that could definitely lead to some headaches for the DA's office. But they're kind of building in time in their uh, witness subpoenas. They're not asking for for uh, these folks to come in until after the November election. So uh, they're certainly, I think, uh, anticipating a fight. And also the grand jury is really breaking their, their public activities until after the election. And if there's a runoff of something, you know, they, they might not be doing a whole lot between now and the end of November. 
So we might not be seeing a ton from them in, in these coming weeks. So there are certainly going to be other court fights playing out. Of course, Mark Meadows, the former White House chief of staff, uh, we're expecting a court hearing uh, related to his subpoena later this month. And of course, Lindsey Graham is still fighting his, and we could see a ruling from the federal 11th Circuit any day now. You know, Margaret, all this plays out, of course, against the backdrop of uh, one of the most important midterm elections in our memories. Um, um, and, and as uh, Tamar points out, Fannie Willis has said for some time now that she is going to stop public activity at a certain point before uh, the election. And, and it would seem that this probably, her uh, uh, letting people know that, that uh, Newt Gingrich and Michael Flynn are on her list, Maybe the last time we hear anything publicly from her until after the election, Margaret. Yeah, well, I, I think that's probably uh, a smart move by by the DA, especially considering the partisan snafu that that she was caught up in earlier this year when um, when she held a fundraiser uh, for uh, Burt Jones's uh, opponent, which turns out to be one of his opponents um, in, in that other race. And so she has to look like she is, um, is, is, is absolutely devoid of partisan politics as she brings this very important case forward. However, even if she goes on a hiatus, of course, we're going to start congressional testimonies again with the January 6th hearings um, in Washington. And so the issue for, pe- for voters who care about the issue of January 6th is going to remain front and center for um, at least another week or two, um, which brings us straight up to the election time. Andra, um, I'd be interested in your take on uh, that. Um, is it our voters? Uh, do you think January sixth is in in voters' minds as we approach this election, or um, is that something that really operates in the background? I think it mostly operates in the background. I think a lot of this is baked in. So the people who are watching the January 6th hearings and, uh, you know, gleaning information from it and making judgments were probably already predisposed to not support people who, you know, deny the results of the 2020 election were probably more inclined to vote Democratic than Republican. Um, now, I've, I'll bet are off if we hear something super interesting and like bombshell yeah. on Thursday that like changes the name of the game. But there's also a messaging component to this as well. And so um, we have seen messaging come up, um, you know, related to election denials, you know, at, at various points in this election cycle. But it hasn't been particularly frequent, in part because at the top of the ticket, we have Brian uh, Kemp and Brad Raffensperger, people who very publicly stood up to Donald Trump in the election lies. So we haven't seen like a whole lot of attack ads. Charlie Bailey does have one against um, Burt Jones that relates to election denial and his role kind of, you know, in um, this particular plot. But it hasn't been um, as widespread as I would have expected it, as, as I would have expected it to be. And so because of that, I don't necessarily know if that's going to be top of mind with voters. I think they have plenty of other things to chew on as they make their decisions. Um, uh, we should point out that when you talk about the hearing, the congressional hearing, we are going to see the fi- what we think could be the final January 6th committee hearing this Thursday uh, at noon. GPB will be covering it on all of our uh, platforms, of course. One final note about that, uh, Tamar, CNN is reporting that Cassidy Hutchinson, who people will recall was a really key star witness for the committee because she was at... Mark Meadows' side and saw a good deal of Donald Trump on January 6th, reported how desperately Trump was fighting with Secret Service to get down to the 
Capitol, had other insights, and CNN reports that she is now cooperating with uh, Fannie uh, Willis, uh, which could be an important development for the uh, district attorney and the special grand jury. Absolutely. I have not been able to confirm CNN's reporting, but it's not surprising either because Cassidy Hutchison's testimony is important because it helps kind of establish the state of mind of folks like Mark Meadows, of folks like President Trump during those key days following the election. And that is extremely important for Fannie Willis as she weighs whether she can uh, she can charge a lot of these folks. Remember, she has to figure out, or at least she has to convince a jury, whether there was criminal intent there. So testimony from folks like Cassidy Hutchison can help give some of that circumstantial evidence that might be able to bolster that case. What's notable about this latest batch of subpoenas that we saw on Friday, and I believe Margaret's right, I think this is the last, that was kind of the last batch of public activities until the election. A lot of those subpoenas really rely on evidence unearthed by the January 6th committee. Um, they also asked for the testimony of Eric, uh, of, um, Eric Hirschman, a former White House mm-hmm. counsel who, who became a very well-known voice at those uh, hearings for his candor and really blunt language. You know, they're citing evidence from him. Same with Michael Flynn and some of these other folks um, who are named. So it goes to show the importance of these January 6th committee hearings to this local prosecution. And I wonder if we'll see additional subpoenas as a result of this latest hearing as well. Just to remind our listeners, Hirschman was the guy who uh, basically testified that he was telling uh, met some of the people, those folks, lawyers and others in the Trump camp, essentially they were crazy to be pursuing the kind of strategies they were taking on tomorrow. Yeah, and and another another guy who was subpoenaed as part of this investigation, John Eastman, Eric Hirschman told him, you better get a great criminal defense lawyer. And that was actually quoted in Eric Hirschman's subpoena. So they they definitely want to be talking to him about that. All right. Um, Hey, uh, if you've been listening to uh, GPB radio this morning, you know we've just started our fall fundraising drive. That means that we're going to be taking a couple of breaks during the show to encourage all of you out there to join us in supporting the work we do at GPB Radio. Um, I'm glad to say that our fundraising team uh, has given us more time uh, to have these conversations uh, uh, throughout the fund drive over the next week or so. Um, So we're going to still have plenty of content time and only going to interrupt the show twice to ask you to support our efforts. So... um, With that in mind, let me send you over to the people who are going to tell you how you can join us. We would love to have you. Political Rewind certainly needs your support. Here's how you can get involved. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Andrew Gillespie, you're the political scientist on this panel today. Uh, So let me start with you on this segment of the show. There's been an awful lot of attention focused uh, uh, for some time now on whether Stacey Abrams is going to be able to energize black voters the way she did in 2018. 
Um, and uh, I want to talk about that a bit on the show today. And, and I want to start with the fact that uh, the NAACP working with HIT Strategies Research, which is, a, I think, a pretty interesting organization uh, because it's a group of social scientists that uh, you go out to uh, talk to un- underrepresented uh, voters, minority voters, and the like. And, and here's some research that um, I saw of theirs. They said that in 2020, 73% of black voters in Georgia felt that their vote was extremely powerful. By 2021, September of 2021, Hit Strategy said that number was down to 46%. They also went on, and this is a poll they did with the NAACP, about 73% of black voters said that their lives haven't improved since Biden became uh, president, and 30% of younger black voters said their lives have gotten worse. So, Andra, what does all that say in terms of how the Abrams campaign, ha- the obstacles they may have to overcome to get their vote out, or does it not make a difference? Well, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think we know enough. So we know that they felt this, but we don't know why. Um, we don't know what other kinds of questions, or I don't know what other types of questions were asked in the survey that we can use to create a model to try to explain why we're getting that particular um, outcome. Um, you know, we do know that during that time period, uh, there was a, a you know, there were many complaints, um, uh, you know, about uh, what the Biden administration had not done up until that point. Um, you know, uh, stumbles on COVID, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, on 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 COVID sort of after the initial vaccine rollout. Uh, we were looking at COVID still being a perpetual problem when everybody was kind of hoping that summer of 2021 would be the end of it. Uh, Stalls in terms of criminal justice and voting rights, which still persist to this day. And so there were things that voters were expressing uh, sort of their critique of um, at this particular point. And I think the big question is, well, what do they feel this summer? So we still have, you know, still haven't done anything on voting rights yet. Um, are still kind of, you know, uh, talking through uh, things related to criminal justice reform. Obviously, those are still issues that are at play. But the Biden administration has gotten um, a lot of its spending and infrastructure uh, packages out of the way, which have helped count with the working and and, and middle-class Americans. So things that they've seen where they may have gotten more money or they have gotten child tax credits or other kinds of things. So, um, you know, I, you know, and, and I, I take those numbers in that moment of time at face value, but I also recognize that those are dynamic and subject to change, and I would kind of want to know where they are today. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things that people realize is that there's a longstanding complaint about uh, the Democratic Party taking Black voters for granted because uh, nine times out of ten, a Black voter is going to vote Democratic as opposed to voting Republican. Um, and while that's true, there's also an issue of mobilization. So if Democrats reach out to Black voters, as is happening, um, you know, from the party or the Abrams campaign or even some of the nonpartisan voter mobilization groups, uh, then that is actually a good sign for uh, Democrats in the state because Blacks make up the majority of, of, of Democratic voters in the state. And so I think some of the things that, that you've seen, the um, uptick in rural outreach because on the margins, that's going to make a difference. That's actually what's, what's most important here. And I think a lot of the things that we see are normal politics that I think in our horse race coverage, where we're paying attention to every minute detail and reporting it, 
like as it's happening in real time actually ends up contributing to the malaise a bit, right? And so we don't think about what our equilibria are. We don't think about sort of kind of what, what normal behavior is. That being said, right, if, if Democrats don't reach out to black voters, they're not going to win any statewide race. And I think one thing is is, is, is interesting. I was um, looking at the poll that came out last week from uh, WXIA, um, where I do a lot of work, and, and they actually had their demos set so that 31% of the respondents were African-American. Um, and I actually think that's a little high. Um, so what we've seen is that Blacks usually make up about uh, 28, 29% of, of, right. of, of the electorate in Georgia, though they make up 30% of, 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 of voters, in, of registered voters in the state. But if you look at the numbers, that poll had Raphael Warnock, for instance, at 50%. And so I think the lesson for Democrats there is you got to get black people to turn out to vote. If their if their turnout does not keep a pace of other groups, that spells trouble for them in this election. And, yeah, and Margaret, we should say that the the Abrams campaign has pushed back very strongly every time we talk about this notion that they're not getting the share of black vote that they need to win the election. They claim that in fact that's a manufactured. Uh, a piece of information designed to suppress uh, uh, the vote. Um, but more important is what uh, uh, Andres saw, said just now, which is the Abrams campaign does have to be out there. Capital B, Alia Wright did a piece uh, recently talking about the big effort that uh, the Abrams campaign is making with black voters in rural Georgia. So it, 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 this is all going to be about turnout, not what a poll says on a given day. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I have a little bit of sympathy for, for that um, position that the, the Abrams campaign has. You know, the, the season for political journalism is very long. And at this point, I think that, you know, some of my colleagues are just struggling to find new ways to talk about old things. And this becomes the talking point and the, you know, the, the story du jour. Um, there are, of course, real, um, real barometers and, and real benchmarks, as, as Andrea has pointed out. You know, strategically, you have to find the messaging that gets your base and gets your demographic excited to come out to vote. And then you have to make sure that they get out that vote. So I, I read a story um, separately from, from the Capital B story. I read a story, I think it was Bloomberg, talking about the lack of money that's coming into Georgia this year compared to 2018 and 2020 for get out the vote campaigns. And the the drop off was noticeable to the flagship uh, groups that we all understand uh, the Democrats and the Stacey Abrams team has has built up. Um, what, what that story, however, didn't point out is that there are a lot of fledgling get out the vote campaign groups across the state of Georgia. We have 159 counties. There's a lot of localized movement in that direction. Um, one of them is called FaithWorks, which is a huge compendium, huge consortium of of traditionally black church leaders across the state who are going to be filling some of that role that um, that that the Stacey Abrams uh, flagship groups maybe aren't um, aren't taking up this year. So I really think that turnout is going to be the biggest test to whether we're all correct. Well, Tamar, let me make two points. Ask you about two different points, really. First of all. The Abrams campaign has so much money right now, they're not going to be able to spend all of it on various kinds of advertising, whether it's social media or TV ads. They do have an enormous amount of money to devote to get out the vote efforts, I presume, and will be using it for that. So that's one point I want to make. The other is it's interesting that uh, your colleague Greg Bluestein reports this morning 
that the Kemp campaign feels so confident about the base vote coming their way that they've expanded, and they too are now looking to see if they can bring some black voters into their camp. They held two events recently with black voters saying that Kemp has run an economy that's uh, adding uh, jobs. It's important in that sense for black uh, voters, saying that he's hired and appointed to positions, a very diverse group of people. So talk about all that. Yeah, and I mean, the governor has been able to use his record and the record amount of money that's come in from COVID relief bills from Congress that he's been able to kind of sprinkle around to various causes, including most recently about $350 uh, given to poor Georgians that they could use for things like gas and groceries. And of course, inflation and gas prices being a top issue for many folks, especially lower income folks that, you know, that stuff affects them way more. So the governor has a lot of, of tools in his toolkit and you know, Greg's story from the other day made it seem like he was starting to make inroads. Um, we're still expecting the, the lion's share of black voters to end up going to the Democratic Party as as they, they typically do. But remember, it only takes the Republicans siphoning off a couple percentage points of black voters for Democrats to, to be in trouble, especially if we're talking about these very closely contested races. And in a year when incumbents, you know, this time being the Democratic Party in Washington, that they're likely to not do as well. Um, one thing that struck me as I read these Capitol Beat stories was was the malaise, as, um, as Andra described it, you know, some folks feeling disconnected from government, like their votes don't matter, or that, you know, the politicians don't hear them and their concerns, or that they only come around when it's election time, but don't care when it's time to govern. And that's going to be harder for Democrats to break through with that messaging. Andrew, what's the ratio uh, in Georgia of black? What do you? What's a Democrat need a percentage of black votes and white votes to win an election? We the standard uh, 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 formula that we think about. So the standard formula is thirty thirty. Um, with changing demographics in the state, we might adjust that a little bit uh, to something a little bit lower, like in the high twenties. But basically, the standard rule is you need uh, a Democrat needs thirty percent of the white vote. And they need blacks to be 30 percent of the electorate. And so the assumptions underlying that are if 30 if, if the electorate is 30 percent black, uh, the Democratic candidate is going to get 90 percent of that vote um, with, uh, you know, new voters in the state, uh, Asian-American, Hispanic voters who um, are not 90 percent Democratic, but somewhere usually between about 60 to 70, 75 in a good year percent Democratic uh, then uh, for, for for that particular party, you don't necessarily need to get one. Uh, you don't need to get thirty uh, percent of, of 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 white voters to vote Democratic, right? There's a, there's a little bit more of a buffer, but the problem, you know, is I mean, Abrams came very close to to winning, um, only getting about I'm doing this off the top of my head, so forgive me if I'm wrong, but about twenty five percent of the white vote. Yes. So, uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, so so those are the numbers that we're working with. But, yeah, when I look at early numbers, uh, my colleague Bernard Fragos is on the show sometimes. When we're paying attention to the early numbers when we see, oh, it's 27 percent. Uh, the electorate is 27 percent black. We're like, oh, that's not good for Democrats. Right. And so that's yeah. the number that that you that you definitely want to push up. All right. Um, OK, I'm going to make a bold statement as I throw it to a pledge. Uh, I am proud of the fact that I believe that you will not get this kind of in-depth conversation about politics going deep 
that you get on Political Rewind, which is why uh, I ask that you consider, if you have not been a donor, that you support us now. Here's how to do it. I just want to say real quickly how grateful I am to those of you who've contributed to Political Rewind and for one reason or another mentioned my name, and, and I'm grateful to you uh, for that. But l- let me tell you the truth. Uh, for the most part, uh, yeah, I get to host the show, but I'm like you. I'm a listener. I get to ask questions and then sit back like you do and listen to people like Andre Gillespie, Margaret Coker, Tamar Hallerman on the show today offer their smart analysis. So I feel more like I'm one of you than I am uh, a guy who somehow uh, makes this show what it is. It's our panelists who really are the important part of what we do. All right. Thank you for your support. Let, we've got some a good amount of time left. So, tomorrow, I want to ask a real quick question about something you've already referred to. Um, you t- talked about the fact that Governor Kemp uh, has been giving out uh, millions and millions and millions of dollars, federal relief money, uh, to any number of groups and individuals out there uh, during throughout the campaign. But, of course, he does it at the same time that he has been uh, aggressively critical of President Biden's federal spending, which is has created an economy with high inflation and other economic problems. Uh, it's not unusual for politicians to talk out of both sides of their mouths, but this is certainly an example of a Republican doing that. Are you are you muted, Tamar? Yes, I am. I'm sorry about that. Um, yeah, you can, on the one hand, kind of go with the, the political tide of the day, complaining about inflation and gas prices, while at the same time, you know, benefiting from a massive spending windfall. Georgia got almost $5 billion in COVID relief money, and governors have the power to decide where that belongs. And the governor has been able to use that very much to his political advantage, um, giving it to all sorts of things like like shoring up Grady Hospital in Atlanta, money for rural broadband in in, uh, the more rural parts of the state. And as I mentioned, about $350 to some 3 million Georgians who are enrolled in, in Medicaid food stamps welfare programs. And that certainly is going to help him on the campaign trail and in November, um, you know, with voters, even the, the type of folks who maybe wouldn't normally support a Republican. Uh, but but having extra money in your pocket, courtesy of Governor Kemp, is certainly not going to hurt. Andre, it's not as if the money isn't being used for good causes. Much of it is. It, nevertheless, I'm talking about the dissonance between complaining about federal spending and taking advantage of it. I mean, so, I mean, there are a number of things that are going on here. So, one, he can take advantage of the fact that it's a Democrat in power. So he can critique what what happens in Washington and set himself apart from it because it's not his party that's in power. So if it, it wasn't, uh, you know, a lot of the money didn't actually come from the administration that he supported. So, I, you know, I'm not surprised by that. Um, I'm also not surprised, given how nationalized our our politics have become, even at the state level, that he's using national talking points to talk about this. But the other thing to kind of point out is that, you know, a lot of people have asked why this race appears to be harder for Stacey Abrams this cycle than it was in 2018. And it's because Brian Kemp's an incumbent now. Um, He's not some other person who's never held this office before running for an open seat like it was in 2018. The fundamentals are different. And if we want to know 
what the spoils of incumbency advantage are. One of it is is that you you know have you know you have access to to, to the piggy bank, um, and if you want to make decisions and get the legislature to co-sign off on on them when that's necessary to give people money, you have the right to do that, and people are going to remember that as something that you did um, for them that they might actually approve of, and so that's part of the challenge. So I don't think we should be surprised at all by what we're seeing, how this is, uh, has the potential to translate electorally, but I'm also not surprised by Governor Kemp's behavior and other people in a similar situation would have done the same thing. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Margaret? Well, I think another part of the dissonance for me is that um, the Democrats in the state of Georgia seem to have ceded this ground to Governor Kemp. You know, this is a marquee piece of federal legislation, and Georgia is a state that's dominated by Republicans when it comes to representing us um, uh, in the House of Representatives. Every single one of those uh, re- representatives, Republican representatives, voted against uh, the, the COVID relief bill and all of the Biden-led legislation. And here we are with statewide races and also federal races in the state of Georgia. No Democrat wants to side with Biden right now for with anything. And there's no one else with this strong message on the Democratic side saying, we did this for you, vote us back into office on any level of, of the ticket. So it's a problem for Democrats and their messaging. And frankly, um, they should do better uh, because a lot of Georgians benefited from this federal money. And it was simply because Democrats bonded together in, in, in disciplined, whip-like fashion that this got through at an any level in Congress. Okay, thank you for that. Um, Tamar, I have waited until this point in the show to talk again about Herschel Walker because we spent so much time talking about him over the last week. But the fact is we can't ignore what's going on with Walker and Warnock in that Senate race. Um, We do know that um, today uh, the reinforcements are coming in for uh, 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 Walker. Uh, Rick Scott, who's the head of the uh, Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee, is going to be here. And of course, we get that it's Rick Scott's job uh, in that role to elect Republicans to the U.S. Senate. So, you know, fine and uh, with that. But it also speaks to the fact that Republicans are so determined to take control of the Senate that they're quite overwilling to overlook things like all of the reporting on Herschel Walker over especially the past couple of weeks. Not only Rick Scott is coming today, but Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas, who's seen as a potential presidential candidate. Um, And it also goes to show the narrowing pathway for Republicans to take control of the Senate and how critical Georgia is still seen, given kind of all the other options available to them. Uh, We've actually seen Republican groups from Washington move resources into Georgia from other states, even since all of this kind of Herschel Walker abortion family saga um, so Republicans are, are kind of running out of options, and, and they still think this is a good one. And we've seen evidence that there are some conservative voters, including some evangelicals, who are doubling down on their support because they're making the calculation that even though the man might be flawed, they might, they'll probably still vote for him because of the policies that he says that, that he's going to support. And it's something that we saw with Donald Trump as well in 2016 and, and 2020. You know, Margaret, yesterday, Maya King of the New York Times was on the show. Uh, she really uh, added to the reporting on Herschel Walker uh, late last week uh, because she uh, uh, reported, she talked to the woman at the center of all this who said Walker uh, uh, told her to have an abortion, which he paid for. 
uh, she told Maya King at the end of last week there was a second pregnancy that, that Walker asked her to terminate. She refused to do it, had the child, and uh, Walker's had very little to do with it. And I asked Maya what the tone that this woman who wants to be anonymous, what's her mood? What, how is she feeling about all this? And Maya said she wants this out there because she believes the hypocrisy of Herschel Walker has got to be uh, addressed. Um, we're going to see all this play out in the debate Friday night, and you're going to be right there in Savannah, Margaret. Yeah, there's there's a lot of apprehension here locally about how this debate is going to go forward. I mean, it is a logistical nightmare. It is challenging in so many different ways. Um and as we have found out here at The Current, you know, the, the, the invitation-only audience is going to be um, a mix of people. The campaigns are each going to be able to invite people, but there's also just a, a, a broad swath of prominent Savannians as well. And the rules of decorum that, that people are being told is, is, is going to be really strict. You know, there's going to be no cheering. There's going to be no campaign paraphernalia in the live audience. There'll be no noise whatsoever. And if there's anything that Savannah is, it is polite to a fault. And so there's not going to be this, the raucous crowd that I think the Walker campaign originally envisioned. It's not going to be a Trump-style campaign rally. And I think the, un, the, the still-to-be-resolved issue is how the candidates themselves are going to behave on the stage. Um, will the Walker campaign take a, a page out of the Trump playbook and try to be brash, bold, blustery, and very aggressive in the style that, that Walker answers? Or is he going to take a page out of Warnock's playbook, which is to um, stay on the high ground and not go negative? So the, the, you know, the fireworks will be on the stage rather than in the audience, as we understand it. Uh, we should say that Craig Nelson wrote a, a lengthy piece about the, the uh, debate uh, and the preps for it uh, on your uh, website at The Current that people ought to read. Andra, um, you, you're welcome to weigh in on all of what's going on, but I, I'm interested, one of the minor th factors that I think is kind of interesting is WSAV uh, has agreed that they're going to give the candidates the topics but not the questions themselves. And some people have criticized them for that. My thought about that is, well, how hard is it to figure out what the topics are likely to be? That doesn't seem like much of a concession. <laughs> You know, th that being said, I, I think you can show a person's lack of preparation if they completely stumble on an answer when they know what the topics are going to be and when they should be able to anticipate a question. I mean, look, I, I agree. I would rather have candidates who uh, just need to study for everything and show up. I mean, it's just like my students when they ask for a study guide and I never give them one because um, I'm like, your notes are your study guide. Like, you know, <laughs> um, like, what are you asking me for? Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, if we see one of the candidates falter, even knowing what the topics are, right. I think that says a lot about their preparation. And I think, you know, I think most people have made their minds up about this race. Um, and so, so I think we're probably about, you know, uh, last poll, about 93, 94% of folks are, you know, know what they're going to do in this race. It's that sliver of voters for whom 
preparation or the apparent lack thereof, compounded with all the dirt that we know about both candidates, could make the difference between winning and losing this race. And so ultimately, what I hope is that as we come out of this discussion, is that we're having a larger uh, conversation about the overall fitness for office and preparedness of both of the candidates. And yet that could encompass all of Herschel Walker's children. Um, and his shaggy defense, and some booms like shaggy, the uh, uh, Jamaican reggae kind of singer, you know, he's like, it wasn't me. Um, and it's like, but your wife was talking to, like, the woman, so, like, I don't know what's going on there, um, or I do. Um, so, like, yeah, I mean, like, that can all be encompassing as we're sitting to listen to them talk about policy and to look at sort of, you know, on a stage whether or not they look like they're ready for prime time. Real quick, because we're running out of time, but tomorrow, Andre just pointed out what I think was the most interesting aspects of Maya's reporting. It, it turns out, as she found out, that this woman and Herschel Walker's current wife have been in conversation regularly for some time and have had a very friendly dialogue back and forth. Walker's wife apparently has tried to intervene to get Herschel to pay more attention to this now 10-year-old boy. It, it, the story just has so many strange elements to it, Tamara. Yeah, I mean, Maya's reporting seemed to catch Herschel Walker in a lie, and she has text receipts to, to show that. So it's certainly compelling. Um, I'm just happy that, that Andra managed to get a shaggy reference into political <laughs> rewind. <laughs> I have to wait for a week to do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, listen, we, we are uh, uh, just about out of time for today's show because we're going to leave you just a little bit earlier than usual so that uh, you can get one last chance uh, to become a donor to a GPB radio to support shows like Political Rewind, Morning Edition, All Things Considered, the other programming that we do here. And again, I'm very grateful to you for whatever you're able to do to help keep this show going. Five days a week, five live hours of radio and an additional five hours of rebroadcast in the afternoon. That is a lot. It takes a big team to do it, so we would appreciate your support. Um, my, I'm so grateful to Andre Gillespie, Margaret Coker, Tamar Hallerman for the conversation today. Thank you so much for being with us. Quick note, uh, we have a poll coming out tomorrow. It is a poll that's a cooperative poll between the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, GPB News, The Current, and a number of other news organizations around the state. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to look, with one week to go until the election, at what the numbers tell us in a snapshot of what's happening now, not a prediction of what might happen on Election Day. We're out of time for today's show. Uh, thank you again to the panel. Thank you all for listening. Back again tomorrow with a brand new show. In the meantime, I'm Bill Naggett. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.